This is episode 53 of the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast with Tony Boykel. Our humanness, our everybody's capacity for being human. Since I'm a human, I have the full range of human capabilities. I can be the goodest good and I can be the baddest bad. And all of that is contained within my humanness. And the music hits all of it. And the music can work with all of it. You're listening to the Music Therapy Chronicles, a podcast about music therapy from a variety of perspectives. Our ambition is to inspire and connect listeners through meaningful conversations, just like a music therapy conference you can listen to anywhere. My name is Trisha Coyote, and I am a board-certified music therapist from the New England region. If you like what you hear, join our group on Facebook and share your own insights and thoughts about the episodes. You can also connect with us on social media and online at Music Therapy Chronicles. Welcome back to the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast. In today's episode, we have my conversation with Tony Boykel, whose voice you may recognize from the MT podcast. That's M-T-E-A. So like the tea you drink. Uh, So Tony's podcast is available wherever you find podcasts, and I will have it linked in the show notes. We also talk about some of his specific episodes, which you will be able to find in the show notes as well. In this conversation, we talk about Tony's podcast, um, some of the conversations that he's had and is hoping to have, his experience with DIR floor time and how that informs his practice, as well as just some good conversation about um, like polarity. I guess we go back and forth about a lot of different theoretical things in our practices and um, in music therapy in general. So I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope that you learned something. If you do, let us know in our Facebook group or by commenting on one of our posts on Instagram or Facebook. We are at Music Therapy Chronicles. If you're looking for a way to support the podcast, as always, please consider becoming a patron on patreon.com. Patrons have the exclusive opportunity to ask guest questions and that link is also always in the show notes. Without further ado... Let's get into this episode with Tony. Welcome to the Music Therapy Chronicles, Tony. Yay, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you because you are a fellow podcaster. But before we get into that, will you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself outside of music therapy? Oh, okay, sure. So um, I'm Tony. I live in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, I'm a music therapist, obviously, but we're dealing with outside music therapy. Okay. Um, So I guess in my spare time, I do a lot of reading. Um, I've just started learning the violin, which has been really challenging. Oh, it's rough but it's great. Um, I read the tarot cards as like a little side thing for fun. Do you really? Um, yeah. What's your oh favorite God, tarot card? Uh, the high priestess. Ooh, mine's the empress. Yeah. Oh, the classic. Yeah. Yes. I think I'm going to get it tattooed on my thigh is my next tattoo idea. Nice. Sorry. Um, I interrupted you. Keep going. No, you're fine. 
Um, and um, we go, me and my friends go out to the club a lot because we're really big into the drag scene in Fort Wayne and that awesome. type of stuff. Yeah. Cool. You got a lot going on then. <laughs> I try. Yeah. Good for you. Busy. So what originally got you into music therapy take us through your your mt journey sure so i don't have like any cute little like mm, my life has changed or like i did it because i um knew somebody with a disability or anything i kind of picked music therapy on a whim um at first because i knew i wanted to study music after high school but i was like i don't want to be a band director and i know i can't cut it as a performer um, so I was like, well, let me check out this music therapy thing. Um, and the more I got into my coursework, the more I really loved it. And the more I was like, yeah, I think this is the thing that's for me. And the meeting the people in the music and musicking together and having that shared relationship really, I don't know, that's really what I love to do. And I've never stopped, I guess. Good for you. And you work with a lot of, um, diverse populations, I would say. Right oh, okay. Now. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's, it's fun. I love the variety of, that I do and that I'm lucky enough to do. Um, so I work with kids on the autism spectrum because in Indiana, everybody on the Medicaid waiver can get music therapy, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, so my kids with autism are a big chunk of my day. And then I work with um, kids who've experienced complex trauma that come to me through the foster system. Um, I supervise practicum students in a children's hospital. Um, I've done a little bit of work with women in recovery. And um, I teach like intro courses at the local university for non-music therapy majors, introduction to music therapy. So all those pieces kind of come together and inform how I work, what I do, and how much fun I get to have during the day. Yeah, I like that last part, how much fun you get to have. Yeah. That's beautiful. good time. So are you at like a center that where you see all these people or are you a traveling music therapist? Nope. I'm a traveler. I sit in my car for a good chunk of my day, um, which is rough. I visit some ABA centers. Um, I work out of the on-campus clinic at Purdue University, Fort Wayne sometimes. Um, but mostly I'm in, I'm in people's homes, working with them there, which is um, challenging, but also really good and really natural, I think, for parents to see. This is how to work with my child at home, in the home. Yeah. It also, I think, helps the client generalize those skills a little bit more because they're in their environment where they're already comfortable, ideally. And when they, when you're working on all those things, it's easier to see like, oh, I can ask for water in the kitchen, not just in the music therapy clinic or yeah. you know, whatever other skills you're I really, working on. I really struggle with the idea of like generalizability because it's like, I'm not sure, A, how much control over it we have, Mm. and B, like, I don't know. It gets into, like, my core ideas of music therapy where, like, my goal in music therapy is to provide someone with an experience of themselves in the music, and that experience allows them to understand themselves or be in relationship with themselves or with another person in a new way. So, like, generalizability, I'm kind of like, eh, um, I don't know about that because a lot of my work focuses on, like, the core capacities of regulating and relating to other people through relationships. So I'm like, that's, they have the capacity to do that with me, but, like, 
that looks different for every person and that looks different for every relationship with every person. And I'm not sure that like the skill set that would be needed in each of those instances would generalize because like, what is generalization? Like, yeah, my client can ask for water or ask me for an instrument, but does that mean they know how to ask for things in their daily life? Or am I focusing on um, helping the client learn that other people can help them and that they can be in relationship with another person who can provide for their needs as well? Yeah. Do you want to break that down even more? Sure. Well, what do you want me to break down? Any of it. Let's go down the rabbit okay. hole. Okay. Um, so a lot of my work and a lot of my thinking comes from my DIR floor time training which is a um, certificate training in the DIR floor time model developed by Stanley Greenspan. And it stands for Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model. And then floor time is the work itself on the floor with the child. And so it is all about working on um, kids or adults' fundamental capacities to relate to other people. Um, so there's like six core capacities that all children move through as they grow and develop. And it's like um, regulating, attending or attention um, or falling in love. It's like the little both titles falling in love, which I think is really cute and really gets to the core idea of like, oh, there's another person I can be in relationship with. And, um, and then it's two way communication, back and forth, social problem solving, which is complex communication. Um, so I work mainly on those four. So I always mix up five and six, but five I think is like logical thinking and six is building bridges between ideas. So I focus on helping the child to access those capacities and then to enlarge them into their world. So rather than focus on like a discrete social skill, like eye contact, eye contact is a big one with kids with autism for a lot of the wrong reasons, I think. Um, but rather than focusing on like a discrete social skill of eye contact or say hello or whatever, we I work on getting that child into a warm relationship that's full of affect, that's full of emotion, because we know children learn through relationship and we know that the attachment and those mirror neurons and all those good things that are happening are happening in the relationship and that's how a child learns. A child does not learn through discrete trials necessarily especially not those more fundamental skills like social skills like being in relationship with another person like emotion skills you don't learn you're happy sad or mad through pointing at a picture of a happy sad or mad face your experience of that emotion is very different thing and you can only learn and understand that emotion when you're in the experience of it i think yeah um I guess I, where do I want to go first? How do you help your clients <laughs> then experience those emotions in a safe way? Um, so we do that through play. A lot of it is through play. Um, so first we have to make sure the child is regulated. So I do a lot of sensory work. I do a lot of music and movement. I do a lot of squeezing and bouncing and rocking and all these things, always consulting with the child's OT. Hopefully they have a really good OT, right? Because I, as a music therapist, I'm not trained to diagnose, to assess, to do anything around sensory issues. That's not my area of expertise. So always consulting an OT. Um, and then figuring out what the child is like over-responsive to and under-responsive to within their sensory system. And so once we have their sensory system kind of figured out, that's the individual difference part of the model. 
then we can start to work through the relationship. So this kid really loves bouncing on a ball. So I'll bounce them on a ball and then I'll add a song about, oh, we're bouncing on the ball together. And then I'll stop and I'll wait and I'll smile with a really big gleam in my eye and he'll scream or he'll smack my hands or he'll say bounce or something, something, something that lets me know, oh, he wants to bounce again. And that's drawing him into that relationship, drawing him out of his own little world in a very gentle way um, into this shared space of, oh, here's another person I'm interacting with. Here's another person that's helping me regulate myself. And then I'm slowly starting to communicate with them through my screams, through my hits, through my whatever. And then once those pieces are in place, we can work to add like bounce. You want me to bounce you on the ball. We start to add language or other alternative communication systems. Um, the emotion piece comes out really naturally because <laughs> kids, whew, Lord, are they emotional, um, <laughs> which is really good because they need that help. They need that practice. So um, when a child loses it because I've misread a signal or because I'm not giving them what they need or because what they need isn't necessarily safe, um, I've got one kid who likes to like stick his fingers in a wall socket. Ooh. I'm like, that's not safe. We can't do that. So when I yank him away, he obviously gets really upset because that's what he wanted to do. So I label it. I say, wow, you're really mad. And I give him that affect right back to a mad, mad, mad. And sometimes we'll develop a mad song where we beat some drums because we're just so mad. Um, and sometimes... I'll draw him back and through his sensory system, I'll help re-regulate him to give him that practice in re-regulating because we learn how to regulate ourselves through co-regulation with another person. And that goes for every emotion, anger, sadness, joy, because sometimes those more positive, what we think of as positive emotions um, can escalate a kid too, right? If they're so excited, if they're so joyful about something, they can go off the rails. So learning how to regulate ourselves through those emotions as well. And then once they hit a certain developmental level, we can take it into play or into songwriting and we can explore the different themes like control or um, anger at somebody, but you can still love somebody while you're mad at them or aggression um, or comfort and caring and those kinds of things. Wow. This is really cool. So I want to circle back to, you mentioned eye contact. And you, yeah. yeah. Tell oh, me God. about your thoughts on eye contact because... Um, yeah, I'm interested. Yep. This, is, this is something that drives me wild. Um, so I work with a lot of kids with autism. And here in Indiana, ABA is really big. So applied behavior analysis. Um, and it's a very behavioral model of teaching skills, teaching discrete skills through discrete trials, which can be good for certain things, really bad for other things. So um, eye contact is a social skill that a lot of people tend to focus on because they want the autistic child to look normal or to behave in neurotypical ways. Um, and so they will make the child look in someone's eyes while talking to them, while addressing them, while whatever. Um, but eye contact can be really painful for someone with autism or someone with any kind of sensory difference. And so, they're focusing on social skills, but like eye contact itself is not a social skill. Just because I can look at someone, just because someone can look at me, does not mean they're attending to me, does not mean we're in relationship together. So they're really 
to me, targeting the wrong thing. And then you're causing that child harm by forcing them to do something that is painful to them. And that's a great way to destroy a relationship real fast is to continually expose someone, a child, an adult, whoever, to something that harms them and say it's good for them. Um, and so we, I work on like social referencing rather than social skills. So how do I know this child is in relationship with me? Are they making sounds when I make sounds? How is our music together? Because I can sit in one corner of the room, the child can sit in the other corner, we can face away from each other, but we can still make music together. We can still be in relationship together. So thinking beyond eye contact, how else can the child social reference? Do they sit near me? Do they attend to me when I talk? Are they turning towards me? Are they turning away from me? Are they responding with vocalizations? Are they responding with movement? How are we attuned to each other through our sensory systems? And how am I respecting that individual's unique sensory system and not forcing them to do things that are painful for them? Mm. Good one. Good, good. I spend a lot of time in the school setting. So mm -hmm. it's refreshing to hear a completely different take on that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting that like these are the models that have grown up and that are like the dominant models right now because I think because they're so like clear cut, they have such clear like this is what I'm working on. Here's how many trials the child is doing. Here's a percentage that I can show you the child is improving or disproving over time. Not disproving, but decreasing. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and it's like so clear cut. It's so beautiful. I have all my data. But like, is that really what the child needs? Is that capturing the fundamental quality of that child? And I don't think it is. In my philosophy, in my belief systems, they're we are more than our behavior and we are more than each of our separate pieces planned out. We are our whole human selves and that cannot be broken down into its separate parts and still maintain that integrity. I don't think. Hmm. Tell me more. Oh, um, okay. So this comes from, I don't know, some readings I've done. It also comes from my own work in music therapy because I believe a big part of our practice is going to therapy ourselves. And so I have done that through my own personal music therapy. I see um, a music therapist who's trained in the Bonnie method of guided imagery and music. And I've been seeing her for about five years now. So I have done my work and continue to do my work in the therapy, which I think is so important, especially as an experiential therapy. So that has led me to wrestle with my own humanity, my own identity, my own thoughts and feelings about everything about myself. And that has shaped me into a different person than I was at the start. Um, and it has led me to some like deep spiritual experiences, some transpersonal experiences, um, just different ways of being in the world and understanding the world that are <laughs> really hard to explain in words because it doesn't happen in words. Mm. Um, but that, have taught me that like our humanness, our everybody's capacity for being human. Since I'm a human, I have the full range of human capabilities. I can be the goodest good and I can be the baddest bad. And all of that is contained within my humanness. And the music hits all of it and the music can work with all of it. So why would I break it down into such a tiny little piece of 
behavior of this person's acting this way, but they need to act this way. So I'm just going to address the behavior. And to me, we are so much more than our behavior. Um, I was talking with um, Edenike Webb from my last episode of my podcast, and she said something like, we're just authentic humans engaging in authentic relationships. And that was maybe my favorite way I've ever heard it explained because it just cuts right to the core of what's happening. Yeah. That was the identity crisis episode, right? Oh, was it? Okay. Or was it the one right before that? I don't Uh, remember. I don't remember if it was identity crisis or decolonization, but it was one of those two with her. Yeah. Well, and as you're talking, it was bringing me back to that episode that you put out. Um, Yeah. So I was like, you know, your eye contact comment, of course, brought me to my my setting where we're in school and eye contact is an expectation and we're working on those kinds of behavioral goals. And then you're, mm-hmm. you're, everything you're saying is completely spot on. And then I'm having a mini identity crisis, like, oh, oh no. gosh, darn it. Like, you know, there's so many different ways to look at what we do, which is why our scope mm-hmm. of practice is like, oh my God, bigger so than I can conceptualize. So confusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, um, the listeners who don't know your podcast have no idea what I'm talking about. So <laughs> let's shift gears into that. Tell sure. us about the MT, T as yes, in T-E-A. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, T, the MT, spilling the tea about music therapy. Yeah. Um, I've been kicking around the idea of having a podcast for a couple of years now. Um, and then I really got hooked on like um, music therapy conversations, the British Association's podcast. Um, and the way they were talking about music therapy and the way they were talking about music. And I wasn't finding that so much in the American podcasts. Um, I don't know. There just seems to be a lack of deeper conversation around music therapy. And instead we all tend to focus on like, here's an intervention. Here's a great song you could use. Here's how I use this song. Um, and I think that's a really basic way of talking about music therapy. And I don't think that's really helping us learn and grow as a profession. Um, so I decided to start my own podcast, um, spilling the tea about music. And that's a phrase that comes from like queer culture, um, spilling the tea. So I identify as queer. So I was, I want to bring that in because that's also something we don't talk about enough Mm -hmm. um, is leaving spaces for those marginalized identities. Um, So I, I don't know, I was starting, I started with the idea of, I want to talk to music therapists and I want to talk to outside professionals and see how we can learn more about music, about therapy, about music therapy, not only through our own lens, but through the outside lenses as well. And then, um, I don't know, I've kind of started shifting the focus lately and I'm kind of still trying to define what I want to do with the podcast because um, I did my first couple interviews, um, my first couple episodes, and I was with my producer, Nathan Sheets, and we looked back and we're like, hmm, I've interviewed three white people for two (laughs) episodes. And I wonder, like, there's more out there. Like, I can't only get these perspectives. And, And I mean, I'm a white person, so it's like, here I am just perpetuating my own um, biases, my own I've had that thought too. Whatever. Yeah, it's like consciously or unconsciously, I am perpetuating the dominant culture. And so I thought, well, let's switch it up. Let's move it. Um, 
And who, oh, I saw, my therapist actually told me about a great conference presentation she went to on decolonizing music therapy education by um, Dr. Adenike Webb and Dr. Brian Abrams. And so I just um, shot an email off to Dr. Webb and I was like, hey, do you want to be on my podcast? I think you're really cool. Um, which I hate doing. I hate like cold calling music therapists. I get so anxious, even though everyone has been lovely and warm and everyone is always so gracious about it. Um, I still hate doing it. It just makes me real nervous and like, you don't know me, but I really like you. Um, <laughs> um, and so we talked about decolonization, which was a little bit different than what I thought it meant. Um, and about allowing other people, other marginalized identities, specifically indigenous identities to lead the way and to be the experts and kind of removing our own voices out of it. Um, and so that led me to the idea of focusing more on like critical conversations in music therapy and things we're not necessarily talking about for whatever reason. Our undergrad is only four years. There's too much to cover mm. in too little time in our undergrad and we're under bachelor's level entry. So like, we're not going to be able to get it all. So let's focus on the things that are being left out, those critical conversations, those marginalized voices, and let's focus on letting those people speak their stories. And I'm trying to remove my voice as much as possible. Um, yeah. Cause I think it's something we don't, we've not really, I mean, we're now we're bringing it into awareness, right. With all this stuff going down around national conference and all the executive directors we've gone through lately. Now I think we're really wrestling with, Oh, we're, we're not just, one single thing we don't all practice one single way we don't all identify in one single voice how do we coexist how do we decide what's right moving forward and how do we um how do we allow these marginalized voices to lead and to um to like i don't know not like point the way forward but to like tell us what they need and to give them that without it being like a big prideful thing where we have everybody gets hurt and then everybody's lashing out and then everybody's all upset because people are different. And I don't know. It's just it's a confusing soup to be in. But I think out of that tension, out of that chaos, there's great potential for opportunity. And there's great potential for moving forward with a renewed um a renewed sense of self and a renewed way of being in the world as music therapists, because I, I do get scared that we're going to disappear if we don't a carve out our space and b work in ways that are unique to us rather than trying to slap music onto cognitive behavioral therapy, trying to slap music onto applied behavioral analysis, trying to slap music onto whatever. Um, I just get nervous sometimes that like, here's something I love and here's something I love doing and I don't want it to go away. When I heard you say that on your show, it um, that was not a thought that has ever crossed my mind. And from my limited perspective, I've always thought like, well, each practicing music therapist is different and should be able to practice in the way that aligns with their beliefs and their preferred method. And in 
being able to kind of tag yourself on to cognitive behavioral or tag yourself on to psychodynamic or tag yourself on to a humanistic. In my mind, I was like, oh, that's a great way for us to preserve the profession because mm. we can see where we fit in. So I, I don't think either of us are wrong, but I, I never thought, oh, no, we're becoming so divided that it's just going to disintegrate. So that was a really uh, interesting thought to hear. Thank you for sharing that and those yeah. conversations. I guess I hadn't thought that like we're preserving ourselves by putting ourselves in these um, identities. That's really interesting to me that like, I don't know, we're like aligning ourselves with the, with the popular model of the day or the year or the decade. And so we are preserving our place that way. I don't know. That's something I'll have to think about. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, cause so I, I do, I think I've said four times already on this episode, but I work mostly <laughs> in schools, but I do see mm-hmm. some individual clients at home and I don't work completely differently in those settings. But when I'm in the school, I definitely have a more school-based approach to what I'm doing. And I have teachers specifically ask me for certain things that you know, I, I try to adhere to. But then when I'm working with a client at home, I in my brain think I'm doing a lot more of what you're doing where it's just authentic relationship and we're working on what needs to be worked through in the music Um, and sometimes it's hard to balance like my identity as a uh, clinician and seeing the benefits of both and like you know intertwining them it's a lot it is a lot yeah and I think that's something we all sort out individually how we draw that balance how we do that dance of here's my clinical goals that someone is telling me I have to work on um because yeah I kind of in Medicaid waiver we have certain goal areas we're limited to um and then parents obviously want to see certain things and sometimes it's like providing that parent support to see that like we have to do x y and z before we can get to your goal um and sometimes it's being very creative with the language I use to say, oh, yes, I have to meet this goal that this person has set for me. Okay, how can I adapt what I'm doing to address that goal? I don't know. It's hard. It's really hard because we're, I don't know, we're individual clinicians, but we are only bachelor's level entry, so we don't have a lot of pushback to say, you know, you have to trust me. This is what I'm doing. You have to trust that I know within my scope of practice what is best for this client at this moment. Um, Because we're working with master's level people around us that are saying, well, what do you know? Here's, you know, work on this goal. This is what you're going to do today. And so, yeah, it's a a very delicate dance around how I'm going to work. Yeah. So why do you think you were finding these conversations more prevalent in the European media versus in the American media? Um, I think it has a lot to do with training, and I think it has a lot to do with the theories that and the culture that are dominant in each place. So, like, I know the Nordic Journal of Music Therapy is putting out a lot of really interesting stuff um voices the world open access journal puts out a lot of interesting stuff not to say that our journals aren't interesting but i think that i don't know you get kind of that idea that europe and i'm gonna make broad sweeping generalizations here 
um, which are obviously going to be inaccurate on some level. But Europe is like psychodynamic land. Um, the more Scandinavian areas fall under like that community, maybe some psychodynamics, maybe some humanistic stuff. Um, we in the United States have been very behavioral because that's how we grew up. That's how our profession was founded, was in the behavioral sciences. And so that's kind of what we stuck with. That's kind of what we had to do to survive and adapt. Um, and I think each of those theories, each of those bases allows for a certain amount of depth and allows for a certain amount of humanity to come through or a different understanding of humanity and people and music. And I think that the behavioral model, the behavioral philosophies allow for a less deep understanding. And are there times that I use behavioral techniques and that I use behavioral things? Absolutely. Um, but I think it's about integrating the different philosophies and deciding what am I gonna draw upon within all of these things that's going to allow me to address the need of the moment right here, right now. I did my internship in a children's hospital, so I'm very much like acute, immediate, walk in, see the need, what's the need, meet the need. Um, so that was my foundational style, and I've carried that with me through my practice, and it served me really well. And then to meet that need, what am I drawing on? Am I drawing on my developmental theory? Um, is this kid just being a little stinker because they're going to be a little stinker today and I'm going <laughs> to draw upon behavioral theory? Um, do I need transpersonal theory because someone is wrestling with what does it mean to be a queer person in the United States right now? You know, what am I drawing on? What lens am I looking through that's allowing me to meet the need right in front of me today? And I think the more lenses we have to look through, the better, the better off we are as clinicians and as people. Yeah. Well said. So what made you choose podcasting as your media to have and share these conversations? Um, well, like um, any other white male, I had things to say. And so I made a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I It seemed like the easiest venue for me. A lot of people were doing it. Um, it's a big thing right now, although I think we're starting to see it kind of taper off a little bit. Um, it's, I, you know, it's just audio, so I don't have to like look pretty while I do interviews or anything. You look lovely uh, today. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. It just seemed the easiest route for me to go. And I just love talking to people and getting their opinions. And I just wanted to sit down with other music therapists who knew a lot more than I did and talk to them. Um, so podcasts seem like the natural format rather than like a YouTube video or see, I'm blanking on what other formats I could even oh, use. You could, you could have made a blog or oh, sorry, well. I should say we, we, cause I could have done these <laughs> things too, but yeah. I chose podcasting. Yeah. I just think it seemed more relevant to the moment. I don't know. Blogs kind of feel like I'm going to get hate for this, but blogs kind of feel old to me. <laughs> I just picture uh, I'm not going to say that because I don't want to go down that road. But yeah, blogs just kind of feel old and like very early 2000s of like, I'm blogging about whatever. Um, so podcasts to me felt a little bit more relevant. Um, everyone I know listens to podcasts in some way, shape or form. So it's like, okay, I guess we'll go down that road. Awesome. Well, good for you for taking the leap and having these conversations and sharing them because that can be scary. 
Yeah, sometimes it's scary how ignorant I am. <laughs> and I'm like, uh-oh. But I've learned that those vulnerable moments are the moments people really attach to and people really learn from. So it's good to show my ignorance. Yeah. Even though I hate it. <laughs> Yeah, whenever I have a moment where I either ask a question or I say something and it's completely differing from what the guest has to say, at first, you know, it's the ego and it's like, darn it, like I'm wrong and it's recorded and everyone will know. But then I I remind myself of that. It's like, oh, this is a great learning experience for me and for the person listening. So, yeah. Yes, it's a very humbling experience. Um, Yes, having a podcast and learning to play violins have definitely been like let me just strip you down to like your bare bits and make you very humble again so why'd you pick up the violin um I had played piano um for like first through eighth grade um and then I picked up guitar before college and then obviously played it through college um and then I was a percussion major that was my main instrument in college um And then I took some voice lessons, too, because as a percussionist, my voice wasn't the best. Um, God bless Dr. Pat Kennedy, who during (laughs) sightseeing class tests would look at me and say, what do you play again? And I would say percussion. She would go, (laughs) ah. And she would give me a little bit better grade, I think. She was very lenient. Um, And so I've never played like a string instrument. I've never played a single melodic line instrument. Um, I guess the voice is a single melodic line, but that's internal. Um, and I wanted to improve like my ear cause my ears a little, little wonky sometimes. Sometimes I think things are sharp and they're flat. Um, and so I thought, well, might as well just learn the violin cause that's going to fix that real quick. Mm. Um, and it's just something that I feel like is very evocative and very like, I don't know. It's something that I'm keeping for just myself. Like I don't plan on incorporating it into my practice um, at this point because it is music just for me. And I think I'm learning that that's important too. Yeah. Good for you um, for both being self-aware and putting yourself out there both personally and on the podcast media and also for keeping the violin for yourself. That's really beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. My teacher always like puts up music and is like, do you need to write the notes in? And I was like, <laughs> no, I think I'm good. Well, because you can read music. You played piano. Oh, yeah. Okay. Anyways, yeah. I was like, no, I got the basics down. I know rhythms. I know music. Like, I'm just here to learn the violin technique and to get some of those things down. Awesome. Do you find it more difficult to learn now that you're older? Because they say what? Once you turn, throw in whatever yeah. age, it gets harder to learn things. I actually find it a lot more fun to learn now that I'm older. Um, I don't know if it's, I don't know. I've just grown up learning instruments. Like I think I finally beat my older brother for number of instruments played (laughs) because he is very naturally talented at music. And I've always been jealous of that because I've had to work really hard to develop my music skills. Um, So now I think I finally have him beat. I think I play more instruments than him. Um, But no, I have found that it's a lot more fun and that I have a lot more tolerance for like the boring skill building things. Cause now I'm like, give me scales, give me exercises because I know these are what I need and what's going to build me up the fastest rather than like, let me play the flashy piece. Let me do the cool things. I'm like, no scales, exercises. Give me those. Those are fun to me now. They can be very meditative. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to like lose yourself in them and, I don't know. I like those 
my gets me structure. Yeah, my first clarinet professor. I played clarinet in college, um, and my first clarinet professor would do. He called them cycles, and for each tonal center, we would have to do all of the modes. So that includes your scales, right? And then we would do all the arpeggios in that scale or tonal center. And then we would do this weird like flourish thing that just used any combination of the notes. And then there was another thing too. I think it was five things for every tonal center. And at the beginning of the lesson, we would just have to sit down and go through the whole cycle around the circle of (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What a beautiful musical resource. Oh yeah, but when like, you're I'm 18, sure it's it's, oh my god, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, what a beautiful musical resource to have is all those modes and all those tonal centers. But yeah, I would imagine that would be just awful. Yeah, they're not really stored in my brain anymore. I don't oh, think. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're they're long gone, leaked out. <laughs> yeah, so much of the music training just goes by the wayside I think which is a shame in some aspects but I don't know I go back and forth between like do I want to be music centered do I really draw upon that theory all the time or like I don't know I flow back and forth between like I need more music skills I need to be able to do all the music things and like well it's enough that I show up and I am myself and I am with somebody in that way yeah and there's also just um so much with like in my episode with Lori Kubitschek, she we talked about leading with the voice and how mm-hmm. you can have vocal training and that's great, but like you you can make your voice do any scale without knowing what scale or mode you're doing. And yeah. you can make the voice make all these sounds and mm-hmm. um, it's good to be able to know how to do that safely. But <laughs> yeah, yeah there, there's other yeah. tools we can use. We can use our bodies as a percussion instrument and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so much of my work with my students, with the students I supervise, is trying to get them out of like perfect music school, music making, and to just have fun with the music. We do a lot of Disney songs in the children's (laughs) hospital. And they'll like, they'll play Let It Go, like technically correct, and it'll be the chords in the right places, the voice will be on the right pitch, but it's like so like stale. And I'm like, that's not what the child wants. That's not what I want. Mm. Like, come on, put some like growl into it, reach for those high notes, like build and build and build and do something musically other than like this is technically correct and perfect yeah um i totally lost my train of thought oh Uh, i remember i i had a professor who one of our classes was like do you guys know you're not performers like she asked it in that way she's like do you know you're not performing like this is not the degree for that and we we were like oh I love that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, the program I teach at is undergoing a shift right now as they like realign themselves. Um, and they're trying to get so the music therapy students don't have to do a concentration recital. Or if they do, they only have to do like one, maybe two pieces on their primary instrument. And then the rest is here's music I use clinically. Mm. And here's like the music skills that I actually need and use rather than like here's a bunch of performance skills that I've developed because you've said I've had to but like I'm not a performer so like why I I totally had that existential crisis and I looking back if an opportunity like that would have been presented how beautiful would it be to 
do a non-music therapy in quotes music therapy experience with like your friends and family who came to support you and get them involved in the music because i find personally that my family adult staff um professionals in my work environment they are so resistant to being involved in the music because they Uh are convinced Mm -hmm. they're not musical yes oh my god we've taken away people's music and it's so sad Mm. it's so sad that like you feel like you have to be trained in music to be able to do music. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, a lot of people carry their own musical wounds around because of that. And it's like, no, come shake this egg. Come shake <laughs> this sound with your I know you sing in the car. I know you sing in the shower. Like, you have a voice. Let's find it. Let's use it. You have a heartbeat. You have rhythm within you already. Like, come shake an egg. Can you make a sound? Great. I'll do the rest. Like, that's why I'm here as the music therapist is that, yes, I can hold the musical space for you. And yes, you can do music. And yes, you're human. So you're already musical. And that's like your birthright as a human is to engage in these music places with other people. Uh, I just think it's so sad. Mm. Yeah. We'll get there. That um, that change that they're making for the the recital, I hope more universities follow that too i think it's a real good idea i um just submitted i just got accepted into grad school so it's part of that congratulations thank you i had to submit um tapes like audition tapes and on the thing on the list it was like submit 10 minutes on your primary instrument i was like oh no so i emailed the director and i was like hey like i haven't touched a percussion instrument like a classic percussion instrument in like two and a half years it's not going to be pretty if I do. Like, this is due in a month. What? <laughs> She's like, we always encourage applicants to submit music they use for their clinical work. And I was like, great, here comes the Disney songs. Here comes all the children's <laughs> songs. Here comes, like, everything I know how to do already. Yeah, because that, I mean, it just makes so much more sense for us music therapists to do pop music and music we use. And, yeah, we should be grounded in all forms of music, I think. But, like... I'm never going to be expected to play a cello suite on marimba during a session. I hope. You're not going to like bring your timpani in. And... Oh, I hate the timpani. I hate the timpani. Because <laughs> you have to listen and you have to be good at tuning. And I am not. Not, not, not. Maybe after all this violin experience, you'll, you'll get it down. I'm sure I'll be better. Yeah. <laughs> oh, who knows? Awesome. I'm really enjoying this conversation and I feel like we could just go back and forth, but I want to be cognizant of your time. So do you have anything you want to circle back to before we do the rapid fire? Um, let's see. I would just like to reiterate how important it is, I think, for us to go to our own therapy. That's something I tell everyone and anyone I meet is go to therapy because A, I think we all need it. Um, and be as therapists, so much of what I do involves myself, my core self, my emotions, my feelings, um, and being able to separate that out from what's happening in the clinical space has been invaluable. And the lessons I've learned through myself in healing, um, in healing myself has taught me a lot about therapy and a lot about what it means to heal and what it takes to heal. Um, what did I write in my journal the other day? I wrote something as I was reflecting on the end of my day about how like um, the bravery it takes to heal looks a lot different than I thought it would. And it's not like that I'm going to get up and fight and heal and fight and fight and fight. It's more of it's a gentle, graceful, 
kind of bravery um, that involves like just turning and looking at the thing that I was so scared of. Yeah, so I'd really encourage people to get their own therapy, get their own music therapy if at all possible. It's so important for us to experience our own medium. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. All right. Coffee or tea? Ah, uh, coffee. But I'm learning how to drink tea. But the MT. <laughs> but the I know that's the secret. I'll never tell. Um, I live on iced coffees. But at the end of my day, I will drink herbal tea if it tastes like fruit and if I get to put a teaspoon of sugar in it. <laughs> Early bird or night owl? <sighs> night owl for sure. But again, I'm working on trying to... I have my alarm set for 7.30 every morning. And that's a struggle. Um, my boyfriend gets up at 6 a.m. because he's a teacher. And I could never. <laughs> so I set my alarm for 7.30 and complain the whole way to the coffee machine. <laughs> um and hope for the best. I'm trying to be, because the mornings are the times when I have to do things because I usually don't start work till nine. So like if I wake up early enough, I can meditate. I can do my tarot reading for the day. I can do what I need to do besides just get in the shower versus where I'm doing things at night. I'm just like watching Netflix or doing something that like, it's relaxing, but it's not like, I don't know. Yeah. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, definitely night out though. Those two or three a.m.s in the clubs are my favorite times. Well, that's probably why that lifestyle works for you, because right? <laughs> you're able to stay up. Right. Something you would tell your younger self. Oh, something I would tell my younger self. Um, what a loaded question. What a beautifully loaded question. <laughs> um, huh. Something I would tell my younger self. Um... I don't know. I don't know if I would. Um, I think the experiences I've gone through have made me who I am today. Mm. And I've worked really hard on loving the person who I am today. And I think part of that comes with not wanting to change anything that happened to me. I have my moments. We all do. That, yeah, I wish the past could be different, but then I would be different. And then you get caught in, like, the time traveler loop. Um something I would tell my younger self, I guess, would just to be to sit and to, I don't know, sit still, turn inwards more, maybe. Yeah. I agree with you that sometimes you want to love your younger self, so you wouldn't want to tell yourself to do it differently. Yeah, it's hard. It's complicated. It's a loaded question, especially, I think, for queer people. Hmm. Um, Is that something I should be more cognizant of in my interviews? Um... I don't know. It's something I don't, it can lead to a very emotional space, right? But asking the question didn't lead me there. I still have the choice of going into that space and opening up and spilling all that out. And so I've chosen not to today. Um, I don't know. I think just, I think it's a good question, but I think, especially for queer people, it's very loaded because like most of us have struggled with our identities. Um, and so like, what would you tell yourself? Come out sooner, love yourself more, da, 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 da. Those are all very loaded topics. Um, I don't know. It's 
something to reflect upon maybe. I think it's a good question, but I think it's one that comes right up to the line of personal therapy. Hmm. Thank you for being yeah. open. Yeah, my pleasure. I appreciate it. All right, your music therapy elevator speech. <laughs> I hate it. Changes every time. Mm. Still haven't found a great one. Um, so someone asks, well, what do you do? Oh, I'm a music therapist. Um, oh, what is that? Uh, so I would say, you know, I use music to help people. And then I usually point it back to them and I say, well, how do you use music? And they say, oh, I listen to music when I'm sad or upset. Or, oh, I sing along to my car. And I say, oh, yeah, great. So then my role as the music therapist would be to deepen your relationship with that music and to see how that music expresses different sides of yourselves. And then I would give a couple clinical examples. So in my work in the hospital, I'll use drumming to help kids work through their pain. Or in my work in mental health, I'll use music to help kids express things that they wouldn't otherwise express. And in my work with autism, I'll use music to help kids form relationships with me when they're struggling to form relationships with other people. Um, and I just think music is a very beautiful human thing. And I think we all have our own music inside of us. And my job is to kind of bring that out. And it's not all happy, happy, fun times all the time, but there <laughs> is a lot of worth in that having it be happy, happy, fun times a lot of the time. Good one. Yeah. Your favorite self-care practice. Uh, doing my dishes and cleaning my kitchen which is something I hate. Um, but this gets into like the difference of self-care and like folk care. Mm. Um, we, was yours the one, was yours the podcast with um, Ami? Yeah. Um, yeah, I listened to that episode. I was like, oh no. Um, <laughs> because yeah, we get caught up in these ideas of self-care as like bubble baths and all these things. And yeah, that's great sometimes. But like for me, I know if my kitchen is clean in the morning, I feel better about my day and I move through the world in a happier headspace. And so I need to clean my kitchen. And I hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it. <laughs> Good for you for recognizing the importance it has in your, your daily routine. Yeah, it's crazy that like a sink full of dishes is like the thing that's going to make or break my day. But this is where we are and that's why I'm in therapy. <laughs> No, I think you're in therapy because you're self-aware and you want to be a better human being, which is our yeah. admirable things. And yes. because of that, you know that having a kitchen makes a, or a clean kitchen <laughs> makes a difference in your daily life. Thank you. Anyway, yes. <laughs> that's my music therapist analysis of <laughs> uh, love it. your, oh, uh, something that is currently adding value to your life. Um, hmm. Um, taking a very conscious choice to give myself grace which is something that my therapist has me on right now is giving myself grace when I mess up when I feel like I'm not enough being gentle with myself and um, I don't know it's a very like felt thing so it's hard to describe in words but that's been really fulfilling and helping me move through the world in a kinder way. Oh, and the Mr. Rogers podcast. Um, what's it called? Finding Fred. Oh my God. So good. I'm convinced that like to be a better therapist, I just need to watch all of Mr. Rogers neighborhood because it's so 
his ideas on like love and children and development and all those things are so like central to my own philosophies that I'm like, I'm just going to go be Mr. Rogers now. <laughs> You'd be a wonderful Mr. Rogers. Thank you. <laughs> Your favorite intervention or song to use in a session? Ah, I knew this question was coming because it was on your little sheet. And I don't like the term intervention. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so this idea comes from Defining Music Therapy, the book by Brucia, mm-hmm. um, where he like really explores each word in his definition. And in one of his definitions, he had the word intervention. And in this, his third edition, he writes about how like intervention is a very medicalized term and it like brings up things of me doing something to you, the client, that I have determined that you need. And to me, that's not how I practice music therapy. So I think about experiences um, and what experience can I bring the client today and what experience can the music bring the client today. Um, So I don't really follow like set interventions. I don't have um, specific things that I apply to different situations. Um, I look for the affordances in music and what music the person in front of me needs that day. Um, so my favorite thing to do is to improvise with someone because I think that's very um, human and that's very, it's a little microcosm of ourselves is when we have to interact with another human in the music and oh my God, how do I do that? Oh my God, how do I sound myself on an instrument and how does that make meaning? And how do you understand that? And how do I understand that? And how do we understand that together? And what does it mean that it sounds like this? And yeah, I love improvisation. It's my favorite. Awesome. So cool. And you have a, a whole episode on it. I do. Jim Hiller, University of Dayton. Mm-hmm. Yes. So cool. Awesome. I will I will link. I think we mentioned most of your episodes, so I will link them specifically as well Not that as many. the show. Yeah. <laughs> But there's, you know, you got to start somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. Yep. Good for you for putting out the content, doing all the things. So thank yeah. you so much for being on the show. Where can people find you and connect with you? Sure. Um, you can find me on Facebook, but I don't really use Facebook that much. It's just there so people can find me, I think. Um, just search my name, Tony Boyko. Um, You can find my podcast on Instagram at mt podcast t like the drink m-t-e-a podcast um we're also wherever you get your podcasts we're on all the major podcast sites my personal instagram is um which is where i spend too much of my time um (laughs) tony underscore mt 13 just post pictures about my life um yeah if you want to contact me professionally the best way to get in touch is probably through email which is tjboykel at gmail.com. Awesome. I will. I'll link all that so everyone can find it. And I've really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for your podcast. I really, I like it. It's one of the American ones that I subscribe to. And I think it's really. Oh, gee, thanks. It's doing something for me. I like it. (laughs) Good, good. Well, hopefully between the two of us, we'll get more of those um, diverse voices. So if you're listening, um, we want you. Contact us. Yes. Reach out. We (laughs) love talking. Yes. Awesome. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Stay safe. Wash your hands. All that good jazz. Stay healthy. (laughs) Yes.
Bye. Bye. so much for tuning in to this week's episode. I hope you learned something, are feeling inspired, and maybe even a little bit questioning of some things after this episode. I always feel, I guess, how should I say this? After doing so many of these interviews, and there are so many different perspectives and mindsets and ideas out there that um, it's wonderful to be able to take away from all those things and kind of integrate them in the way that works best for me. So I hope you, the listener, are also able to learn and do that yourself. Um, yeah, it's really nice to be able to connect with other music therapists and with all the conferences and stuff being canceled. I honestly was really looking forward to going to conference uh, this spring. So it's I'm so grateful to have this platform to be able to continue to connect with music therapists and put out this content for you the listener to also stay inspired between those conference or continuing ed opportunities if you or someone you know is interested in being on the podcast or if there's someone you want me to reach out to specifically please let me know by sending an email to feedback at musictherapychronicles.com find us on social media at music therapy chronicles and check out our facebook group please consider leaving us a review on iTunes and or Facebook. I would love to have a dialogue going. Um, yeah, let me know what you like, what you want to hear, what you think, all that kind of stuff. I want to hear how the podcast is impacting you. So thank you so much for listening and I will see you in the next one.